as we've been working through this series uh, called Gospel Conversations and talking about and, and using God's Word even uh, to equip us to speak about the Gospel, to talk about Jesus with those that we know that don't know Him, we have uh, gone about that in such a way as to sort of frame out the Gospel story or the, the broad contours of the Gospel that we see in Scripture. Uh, that God has created all of the world and everything in it, all that we see and we know, that he has created us in his image to be the reflectors, the bearers of, of his glory and his character into the world to take care of creation. We understand also that we were made by God for a relationship of love and worship uh, of him, even as he loves us and intends to walk with us. We saw also in Genesis 3 and Romans chapter 1 last week, the problem of sin in the world, that all of us, though we are made in the image of God to reflect the character of God, to live in love, worship, and obedience to Him, that all of us have chosen ourselves. We've rebelled against Him and His plan for us and instead sought our own way. And because of sin, our sin, that we are guilty of, there's a, a breach, there's a brokenness in the relationship between us and God. We asked questions like, how did we get here? What are we here for? Those questions we answered as we looked at Genesis 1 and 2. Last week we asked the question, why are things the way that they are? And we answered that from Romans chapter 1. The world uh, exists in the state it does with so much pain and suffering because of our sin for which we bear responsibility. Today we're going to ask and answer a final question. I'm not going to give it away just yet. From Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we're going to continue this uh, conversation, this look at uh, how we use God's Word to clearly communicate, where we see the gospel in God's Word, and how to communicate that with others. As we've said each and every week, the gospel uh, in and of itself can be framed within the discussion of God's design, our sin, and ultimately God's rescue plan, and we've reviewed that each and every week. We saw two weeks ago God's design, last week our sin, this week we're looking at the rescue plan that God has for humanity. We're looking at the solution to the problem that we saw last week. The solution to the problem of sin and death we find in Ephesians chapter 2 is forgiveness and new life that is given as a free gift of God through faith in His Son, Jesus. That's the answer. That's the solution. Um, So I've already preached the whole message. In just a minute, I'll preach it again. As we look at Ephesians 2 this morning, I would hope that we would, from this text of Scripture, be reminded of the very good news that is the gospel, that there is a divine and saving response to our sinfulness. Likewise, I would hope that we would continue to grow in our capacity and our ability to speak in our conversations with with those who don't know Christ about the hope of salvation that we have by grace through faith in Jesus. We don't just study God's Word to see what it says is true about who we are in Christ. We also study it, and we study those same truths to know that that we might embody, that we might um, uh, internalize those truths in such a way so that we might be able to speak about them confidently with those who do not yet know them. As we look at the solution to the problem of sin, the, the rescue plan that redeems us back to the kind of life that God has designed and intended for us, Uh, We find this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and I would invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. There in Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, saying, You are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature 
children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God bless his people as we read his word. You may be seated. Several years ago, I was the owner of a motorcycle, and one day I hope to be again soon. There was a time... Uh, so I had my motorcycle, and, and I thought that having it, I would become really handy with things. And so I bought a, a manual for a maintenance manual, repair manual for the motorcycle because I wanted to do all the work on the motorcycle myself, pride of ownership type thing. Um, I still have ambitions like that, but not so much the will to carry it out. But there was one day I went to go change the oil on my motorcycle, and this being a particular, um, uh, uh, an overseas model, it was... Um, kind of difficult to change the oil filter on this motor. Now, with most motors, and some of this will make sense to some of you, and some of you won't care about it at all, but that's okay. Uh, like, on your car and on most motorcycles, the oil filter, just it just unscrews off the bottom or off the side of the motor. It falls out. You spill oil all over the place. You clean it up, and you screw a new filter on. This oil filter sat behind a, a, a metal plate that was bolted on with three uh, hex bolts. And so uh, I got out my hex key, my Allen wrench, and I had my bike up on its center stand, and I stuck that uh, hex key, that hex wrench into that first bolt and went to loosen it, and, and the worst feeling in the world came over me and through my hand. It's that feeling of when, when the inside of the bolt just strips out. I was like, oh, goodness, you got to be kidding me. So I, so I, so I, I tried to find a, a solution to this. I, I got the next bigger hex key, and it, it still fit in there with some resistance. And I went to go and turn it, and same thing, stripped out even further. So at this point, I'm going, how am I ever going to change the oil? Changing oil on a motorcycle is not a hard thing. How is this ever going to get done? So I went to Home Depot, and I bought a bolt extraction uh, kit. And it's this little drill bit. Some of y'all are laughing because you know exactly where this is going. It's a little drill bit you put in the end of your drill, and it, and it goes the wrong way or whatever inside of the screw. There's physics and stuff that uh, apply here that I don't know, but I followed the directions. And so it, like, bores out. This tool is supposed to bore out the inside of your stripped-out bolt and then catch the bolt in such a way so as to turn it and pull it out of its, uh, out of its position. So I did all that. I followed all the instructions. I put the bolt extraction uh, bit into place. I hit the trigger on my drill and just went and just kept going. Never caught, never got, and all I did was strip out the bolt entirely. So here I was with my motorcycle, pride of ownership, except for I'm completely humbled by the fact that I don't even know how to change the oil on my motorcycle. At every point along the way, trying to change the oil on this stupid bike, I just kept making the problem worse. 
Now, had I stopped when I first stripped out the bolt and said, I need some expertise, I need some help, I can't do this on my own, I wouldn't have made it into the project that it became. And ultimately, I made the mess way bigger than it needed to be. I never changed the oil myself. I had to take it to a bike shop here in town where they did it for me in like all of five seconds because they knew how to take care of the problem I was incapable of fixing. Friends, all of us in our sin, in our own attempts to try to be right with God, are just like me trying to change the oil on that motorcycle. No matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, no matter what tools we implement in that process, all we do on our own is make it worse. We need someone else to fix the problem of sin for us. We asked and answered those questions over the last two weeks. How do we get here? What are we here for? Why are things the way they are? It's the last of these three questions, why are things the way they are, that we explored and we answered from Romans chapter 1 last week. And there we found that the world is the way that it is with all of its pain and all of its suffering, all of its brokenness because of the willful rebellion, we call it sin, that every person from Adam and Eve on down has exercised against God. The results of that rebellion and God's displeasure with sin, his wrath, were to be found, we saw there in this continued cycle and downward spiral into greater and greater sinfulness, separation from God, and, and even death. We just keep making the problem worse. And so, friends, this is where Paul picks up in Ephesians chapter 2, with the problem of sin continued. And this is, as, as his word in Romans 1 told us, very bad news. He begins in verse 1 by reminding us that sinners are dead in their sin. He says, you are dead in your trespasses. Paul here demonstrates to the church at Ephesus a keen insight into the realities of man's sinful nature. He understands rightly and reminds the church clearly that sinfulness is death. That is, to sin is to be dead. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 1, verse 32, we saw this last week, where Paul said, Though they know that God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This death that Paul speaks about is not a physical death, not yet anyway, in the case of all of us in this room still breathing this morning. But this death that we have is a moral and a spiritual death. It is an inability in and of ourselves to do what is right, to do what is godly, to choose righteousness. In our death, our our spiritual death, our lives of sin reveal our true allegiances. Shows that we have, Paul shows us we have an allegiance to the surrounding non-believing world. In verse 2 he says, uh, in, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. That verb, to walk, refers to an ethical conduct or a way of living. We often talk about our walk with Christ, that our ethical conduct, our way of living, should be like Jesus, should be with Jesus. But here Paul says in verse 2 of Ephesians 2 that our walk, apart from Christ, is one that follows the course of this world, not the course of our Savior. Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus, and to all sinners, by the way, which is all of us in this room too, that the way that they lived made it obvious that they were dead sinners. The pattern of their life revealed the truth of their hearts. They're allegiant to the world, and also they're allegiant to Satan and even his spirit of disobedience. Paul goes on saying, You are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
This is to say very clearly that, that yes, our sinful hearts do pull us one direction, but also that Satan, the enemy, the, the accuser, the devil, is at work in the hearts of sinners to do all that he can to draw people away from God, to continue to lead disobedient lives. And we've said before, I've said before, you don't get to blame Satan for all of your sin. But, but believe me, brothers and sisters, he is trying to get you to sin. He is working to make you disobedient. He is working to make you think that discomfort is deplorable. He's working in your heart to, to make comfort your king. He wants to show you, wants to convince you that selfishness trumps selflessness, that sin is some sort of absurd cosmic abstraction that religious people have constructed to keep others in line rather than the deep-seated spiritual cancer that it really is. As sons of disobedience, Paul is saying, those who follow the course of the pattern of the world, who are being influenced by the spirit of disobedience, sons of disobedience refer to any person who rejects or lives outside of the gospel of Christ. We saw two weeks ago that God created us for lives of love, worship, and obedience, that we would follow him, that we would obey his commands. And when we disobey, we become children of disobedience. As a result of all this, it's very bad news that we're dead in our sins, that that we have followed the course of the world. We've given our allegiance to things and to people that are not God. We find also here, as Paul says, that sinners have made themselves natural enemies of God. We've made ourselves enemies of God. Our sinful condition of disobedience stirs up God's wrath Paul says in verse 3, and we saw much of that last week in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul says, they were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If ever you needed a a verse to tell you whether you were a sinner or not, you look at verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 2. They uh, They were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This room is full of the rest of mankind. All of us on our own, in and of ourselves, in our disobedience to God, are children of God's wrath. Their nature, Paul says, is a sinful one. It's marked by a rebellious heart, which is inherited from Adam and his disobedience in the Garden of Eden. He says that our heart's desire is, is in fact, to do the opposite of obeying God. It is to disobey God. And as children of wrath, we are children of God's wrath. Not some sort of impersonal process of cause and effect. We're not children of the wrath of karma. We're children of the wrath of a personal God. We saw much of this back in Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 25 last week, where we saw that God exercises his wrath in, the, in this world, most often not in, in, in divine lightning bolts and fire from heaven that strike people dead in their tracks, but rather God demonstrates his wrath by allowing people to continue to walk in their sin and to reap the consequences that come from it. Friends, if God is holy and God is completely righteous, if God exists without sin and is always acting rightly, always acting justly, then by his own nature, he must exercise wrath against sin. He cannot tolerate it. And for God to tolerate sin, for him to just live with it like it was no big deal or like it was just some other way to live, for him to tolerate sin with neither condemnation nor judgment against sin would be both an insult to his holiness and to his justice. If God does not display wrath in some way, shape, or form according to his nature, his judgment toward sin, then then, uh, he himself would show himself to be an unjust God. A God who does not judge sin is not a just God, and he's not a God worth worshiping. And so as Paul shows us in Romans 1 and again in Ephesians 2, God is worth worshiping because he is just. He is righteous. He always does what is right. 
But here in these first few verses, several verses of Ephesians 2, we're left with really bad news, the same bad news that we saw last week in Romans chapter 1. So knowing that this is the image, that this is the picture that Scripture paints for sinners, that sinners are dead in their sin and in their trespasses, uh, children of God's own wrath because of our rebellious disobedience to Him, we ought to be led to ask, we should be led to ask, then where can I find hope? And that's the question we turn to Scripture today to answer. We've asked those questions, where did I come from? What am I here for? Why are things the way they are? And knowing why things are the way they are because of our sin, because of our disobedience, knowing that we're dead in our trespasses, there's nothing good that comes of ourselves in terms of our relationship with God, we are left with this question, where can I find hope? In this bleak, dark picture that my sin has painted for me, where, where is there any glimmer of hope? And we find an answer to that in several places in our text this morning. First of all, in verse 4, in the mercy and love of God. There is hope in the mercy and love of God. Verse 4 begins with the two very best words in all of the Bible. But God. Paul paints this picture of the sinfulness of man and our separation from God. Our our position as recipients of his wrath. And then in verse 4 he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And he'll continue on. Friends, there's hope in the very fact that God, in response to the depravity of our sin, does something equally miraculous and wonderful. His divine action, uh, his divine intervention in our lives, driven by his mercy and love, is what we see here. But God, being rich in mercy because of, on account of, the motivation which is the great love with which he loved us. God is full of mercy, dear friends, and we say amen to that. But God's mercy is not just a New Testament thing. I've met people who say, I I like the God of the New Testament a whole lot more than I like the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament is just, he's so much more loving, he's so much more nice and just easygoing. God of the Old Testament, he's just all angry and wrathful and, and mad all the time. Friends, God's mercy, his compassion, his love is not just a New Testament thing. It's an entirely biblical thing. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, as God has brought Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, to be a people that he will call and use for his own glory in the world, he there appears to Moses on Mount Sinai and says this about himself in Exodus 34, verse 6. It says, uh, the text says, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed. This is the, the Lord's word. The Lord, the Lord, his personal name. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This from the second book of the Bible, friends. God is not just merciful in the New Testament. He's merciful in the Old as well. But to underscore the fact that he is certainly clearly merciful in the New Testament, we also read Romans chapter 5, verse 8 where there Paul says that even while we were sinners, God shows his love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God's love, God's mercy extend from eternity past into our present moment and into eternity future, and he displays his love, he displays his mercy most perfectly in Jesus, his son, who dies for our sins. And so this is what we find in Ephesians chapter 2, that while our disobedience against God, our rebellion against him, rightly provokes the wrath of God, his love for us provokes his mercy. You see the difference? The, 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 the contrast that's there? Our actions, our sinfulness provoke God's wrath. But God's love is provoked not by anything we do. His mercy is provoked not by anything that we do. 
but by the love that he already has for us. So here's this tense mystery in Scripture that while, while sinfulness is the recipient, of, the recipient of God's wrath, his love provokes, it brings about in him a mercy that provides a way to avoid his very wrath that is justly displayed against sinners. And yet just as there is hope in the mercy and love of God, our Creator, there is hope further still in this passage that we see this morning in union with Christ. Where is there hope in light of sin? Well, in the love and mercy of God, but also in union with Jesus, the Son of God. Verse 5 tells us that even when we are dead in our sins because of our hatred of God or rebellion against Him, that God in His love causes us to be united with Jesus Christ, His Son, in three different ways. First of all, we are made alive with Him. Verse 5 says, even when we are dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. God loves to bring spiritually dead people to life. And that is a truth worth banking your eternity on. This salvation, this life-giving process is accomplished in accordance with Christ's actions in defeating death on the cross. And it is done at God's initiative. He's the one who starts it. He's the one who finishes it. Notice uh, in this uh, verse that Paul says that they are made alive. We are caused to be made alive by God through Christ. Those who, who have received salvation that God offers are passive recipients of the life God gives. Notice Paul's interjection here in verse 5. He just, he, he'll say it again in verse 8, but he can't quite keep himself from saying it here. He, made us, he says, in our, uh, even though we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is like saying... Like Paul saying to the church in Ephesus, see how great this truth is, right? God's grace has saved you. That word grace just means, it means a, a gift. It's something that is freely given. It's favor that is not earned. God's grace has saved you. His love-motivated motiva- mercy has caused him to gift us with life even though we were dead. And not just any kind of life, but life in the likeness of Jesus. A life lived with Christ, Paul says. A life that overcomes death forever. This word grace points us to the special nature of God's saving action as one of abundant generosity to an undeserving sinful humanity. Grace is favor given that is not earned. This emphatic parenthetical statement, by grace you have been saved, Paul says, draws our attention to God's sovereign freedom from obligation in saving us. God doesn't owe us anything in salvation. We, we don't have, it, we, we, God is, we are not God's creditors, okay? We have not extended him something that he must pay back. We've not done anything for him that he must give to us in return. Rather, God does all of the work for us in salvation. God is compelled to save us by nothing other than his love and his mercy for men and women that he created in his own image to know, love, and worship him. God does not have to save us, friends. He's a just God, and he's just in judging sin. We are deserving of his wrath, but yet, because of the love that he has for us, he chooses to save us. So we are united to Christ in his death, and we are raised from the dead with Christ, Paul goes on to say, and seated in heaven with him. This is verses uh, 6 and 7. Paul goes on to say, And God raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
friends, know this, that sinners are raised to life in Christ all the same ways that Christ is raised to life. Jesus Christ, three days after his crucifixion, which paid the penalty for our sins, was raised again to new life, physically raised from the dead, never to die again, to to sit at the right hand of God the Father, to rule and to reign over the cosmos. And we, when we receive Christ, when we receive salvation through trusting him, we're raised in the same way. Spiritually, we're raised again, and then one day, Christ will return to raise us physically, bodily from the grave, never to die again. In Christ, not only do we escape the eternal effects of sin, which is separation from God, eternal punishment in hell as a result of our rebellion, but we also enjoy the presence of God both now and in the ages to come. There is no benefit that Christ enjoys now as the risen Son of God in fellowship with the Father that we will not also share. We will not become God like Him, but we shall be right with the Father and in the presence of the Father, even as He is. We are saved, Paul goes on to say, so that God can ultimately show just how great He is. Now, God saves you because He loves you. God offers salvation as, out of His love for humanity. But ultimately, His, his motivation, his, his end goal is so that He might receive the glory by demonstrating to sinful people just how loving he is. Verse 7 says, He does all this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Understand this today, Christian. Salvation is for God's glory. You benefit from it. You benefit greatly by being made right with God through faith in Jesus who died for your sins. But it's ultimately not for you, it's not for your betterment. It's for your salvation, but it's for God's glory. God doesn't save you to make something special out of you. God saves you so that he might be shown to be great in in spite of you. He saves you for the demonstration and proclamation of his own greatness in the world. And in so doing, his mercy that overcomes our sin is shown in salvation. And God is glorified as he saves people who don't deserve to be saved. Finally, we see that we are united to Christ. Uh, excuse me. Finally, we see, uh, yeah, that we are united to Christ in, in salvation. In verses 8 through 10, Paul uh, describes this work of salvation in the world. First of all, by grace, verse 8. Paul says, therefore, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. The truth is this, that God works salvation by his grace, by his, his gifting, by his giving in spite of what we have earned for ourselves. This much has been made abundantly clear already from what we saw in verse 5, but it's experienced in the life of the believer by our act of having faith in Christ. So we receive uh, salvation as, a, uh, as coming from God's own grace. He doesn't have to give it to us. He chooses to give it to us, and we receive it through faith. We receive salvation through faith. Now, faith, though it's an activity, uh, another word for faith in the Bible is trust or belief. Uh, it's not just a, 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 a mental sort of giving assent to things that are true, but actually resting your life uh, in those truths. Faith, while it's an activity, faith is something that we express, is not anything that actually affects salvation. It doesn't bring salvation about. Rather, if anything, faith is an anti-work. 
It's the process of abandoning any attempt of your own to gain God's favor or salvation and trusting in what God has said he's already done for your salvation. We receive salvation by grace, through, by God's grace, through faith in Christ, and third and finally, as a gift of something freely given. All of salvation is a gift, says Paul. From God's glorious sending of His Son to die for your sins to our very ability to place faith in Christ. All of it is a gift. The whole part and parcel, all of it is from outside of us. It's from someplace else. It's from someone else. Brothers and sisters, you cannot save yourself. You never have saved yourself. You never will be able to save yourself. God has done it for you and given it to you as a gift The gift of faith here then, so God gifts us with salvation by sending his son to pay for our sins, but also by giving us the ability to place faith in Jesus. The gift of faith here is trust. Uh, As we said before, it's a a, a belief, a heartfelt, uh, life-resting belief in Christ's death and resurrection for salvation from God's wrath toward our sin. It's trust in Jesus who overcomes the eternal separation from God that is caused by our sin. Trust in Jesus and in nothing and in no one else. Paul says, this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Paul has already noted the nature of the gift of salvation in verse 5. By grace you have been saved. But he underscores that point here yet again, just to drive it home to the believer. He does not want the Ephesians to walk away from this letter thinking that somehow they've done anything for themselves in salvation. He's giving all the credit to God and rightly directing them to give all credit to God in it as well. Friends, all too often we are tempted to take credit for things that we're not responsible for. And thus Paul writes to counteract even the possibility of the believer taking credit for, having, for even having the faith to be saved in saying that the entire process from, from Christ's death to his resurrection to the giving of faith to be able to believe in Christ and trust in him, all of it is a divinely given gift. You didn't do a bit of it to earn it for yourself. Finally, we see in this text uh, that we are saved uh, to live in a new way of living, to live in a, a new walk, a different kind of life. In verse 10, Paul shows us that while we have done no work to gain salvation, we are saved to do good works. In verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, his craftsmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, where in the sinner's previous deadness he walked in sin, in his new life in Christ he walks in good works that God has prepared for him to do. We are not saved to sit as bumps on a log in the kingdom of God, passively receiving encouragement from God's word, but rather to do stuff in response to it, to live in light of the salvation that we have received. But catch this, and I love this about what Paul shows us is true about how God works in salvation, that even the good works that Christians do have already been planned out by God. God is the the source. He is the the work. He's the one who does everything in this process of salvation. He sends his son to die for our sins. He raises Christ from the dead. He gives us faith to believe in Jesus. And then he plans out the good works that we are to do as we follow Jesus. Everything good about the saved person's life, everything good about the Christian's life is from God. It's not from Stephen. It's not from Scott or John or Mike or Karen or Cindy 
None of the good things that we do in life come from us as Christians. They all come from Christ. They all come from God who has saved us for these things and planted these things, planned these things for, for us to do. So whether it is our being saved or whether it is our doing good works after being saved, God is in control of the whole thing and we praise him for it because he took initiative to intervene in the midst of our sinfulness out of his love for us to make a change, to bring about a change in our lives, to cause us to be born again, to go from death to life, to go from sinfulness to righteousness as we are clothed in Christ's righteousness, to go from rebelling against God to walking in love, worship, and obedience to him. See all the wonderful contrasts in this passage that give us great hope and promise for a new life in Christ. We'll just point these out very quickly. Paul begins this passage by saying, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and closes by saying, we are alive together with Christ. He begins by saying, we were once sons of disobedience, but now we are raised up with Christ, the very Son of God. He said before, we were children of wrath, but now we are seated with Christ. We were children of wrath, but now we are recipients of God's mercy. We were children of wrath, but now we are recipients of God's great love. We were once children of wrath, but now we are the recipients of the riches of God's grace. Once we were children of wrath, now we are recipients of God's kindness. Once we were children of wrath, Paul says, but now you are the miraculous, delightful, beautiful, glorifying workmanship of God. This is a picture of salvation, friends. This contrast, this shift in, in living, this shift in how we act and how we respond in the world from being rebellious traitors against the rightful king of the universe to now being called children, to be called sons and daughters of the living God who by his own gift of grace to us through our faith in Jesus has brought us into new life with him. All of this, friends, this new way of living, this hope of salvation, all of it, Paul says, comes by the work of God and is for the glory of God and it is driven by the love of God that he has for his image bearers in this world. This transformation of going from spiritual death and eternal separation from God to spiritual life and eternity in his presence is what the Bible means by being born again. You'll remember in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, Jesus is visited late at night by a prominent uh, religious leader named Nicodemus who, who comes to Jesus just to, to hear from him, to learn from him, recognizing that, that uh, he's an effective teacher and that people are beginning to follow him. And he asks Jesus... Uh, what it is to, to, to be saved, what it is to have eternal life. And Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, thinking, you know, in a worldly, physical sort of way, is going, I, I, don't, I don't get it, man. I, I can't climb back into my mother's womb and go through that process all again. And Jesus says, no, 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 Nick, you don't get it. Let me try again, right? He says, unless one is, uh, unless one is born of the Spirit, he cannot have eternal life. John 3, 16, maybe the most quotable passage in all of Scripture. Jesus says this to Nicodemus. He says, God so loved the world. He loved the world in this way, that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, trusts in him, rests their life on him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. Friends, this is what it is to be born again, to place all of your hope, all of your faith, all of your expectations, and, 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 and all of your joy in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who paid for your sins, who rose from the dead to make you right with God. Trust Him. Believe Him. Rest your life on Him. And not just facts about His life, but on Jesus, the person who ever lives and sits at the right hand of God the Father, even now, 
even now as a mediator for us. This is a beautiful picture of God's solution to our sin. That God solves the problem of our rebellion and our brokenness, not by asking us to do more stuff or to be better, but by saying to us, I'll take care of the problem for you. I'll take care of the problem for you. Understand this, dear friend. In in, in response to this word this morning, applying it to our lives, seeking to live out the implications of this verse. If you are one who does not know Jesus this way today, I invite you to experience the hope that God gives by trusting in Jesus today. Be born again today by turning from your sins and turning to Jesus, resting your life in full faith on him, the person, asking to be made new pleading with God on, on beha- uh, because of Jesus' death for your sins, to be forgiven of your sins, and know in confidence that if you are, in a heartfelt way, turning from your sins to trust in Jesus today, you will be saved. That's the promise of Scripture. So experience the hope that God provides by, by trusting in Jesus, if you never have before. But even Christian, you who've been a believer for maybe many years, you too can still experience the hope that God provides by trusting in Jesus. I'm not saying you have to get saved or be saved all over again today. You don't have to be born again again. But we live our lives in constant faith and trust in Jesus. So if you, brother or sister, Christian in this room, you are lacking hope in this life, turn again and trust to Jesus. Ask God to restore the joy of your salvation as you cling to Christ your Savior. And then those of you who know Christ and have known him, who have known the hope that he provides, then you also, having experienced the hope that God gives through Jesus, you then also extend the hope that God provides by sharing this beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. By sharing it. God loves sinners so much that he intervenes in the course of human history to make a way for our salvation. If we, out of love for God and love for those who, who uh, but by the grace of God, uh, go we, if we can't love them enough to share the good news of hope in Jesus Christ, how much do we really then love them? If you know the hope that God provides in Jesus Christ, you ought to extend the hope that God provides by sharing the gospel of Jesus. And I'm not trying to guilt you into being like a street corner preacher every minute of your life because God calls some people to do that, but not everybody. But what I am saying is in the moments that God gives you, in the opportunities that arise in conversations at work or at school or with family members, be looking for opportunity to inject the hope and joy of salvation that you have in Jesus. Step into those opportunities. This is literally the greatest news that you can deliver to anyone. Everybody likes to be the bearer of good news, right? Every doctor wants to be the doctor that walks into a patient's room and says, hey, good news, we got all the cancer, you're not going to die. Every doctor wants to be that doctor. People love delivering good news. The gospel is literally good news. Let us deliver it with joy. Let us deliver it with joy. That's been the purpose of this entire uh, three-week series that we've been going through. Gospel conversations, how to talk about the gospel with people who don't know Jesus. And, and I hope that you've noticed all along the way, I've not said you just need to go stand on the street corner or in the middle of the break room or get up on a chair in your office or whatever the case is and just proclaim the gospel to everyone who's listening, whether they want to hear it or not, but rather to, to look for opportunities in conversations with people that you know and that you love. Look for opportunities to ask questions that you can then use to pivot the conversation, to turn people to considering Jesus. And so here I want to leave you with four more questions that you can use and shape and edit or redact however you want to do, but 
but to, to use in, in engaging people with the gospel, particularly around this aspect of the solution that God has provided to our great problem, which is sin. Number one, here's an example of a question you could ask. You know, you, perhaps you've been talking about suffering or pain in the world and uh, what's the source of it all and how to fix it. You could ask a question like this. You know, after all of our trying as a human race to, to fix the problems of the world, you know, social, social movements, social efforts, you know, government intervention, wars that we fought over, th- all of this stuff, how is it that with all of the fixing we've tried to do, we still haven't been able to make the world right again? How is it that with all of our wisdom, all of our capability, we still haven't fixed stuff? Why is there still a problem? You take and use their answer, whatever way it is, maybe to, to pivot the conversation toward Christ. Maybe you could ask the question, well, maybe the problem is something that we can't fix. Maybe the pain and suffering in the world is something that, that we can try really, really hard, but never really totally get rid of. Use that as an opportunity to point to the hope, the salvation, the promise of righteousness that God gives to us in Christ. Question number two. It's just a question about hope. Ask your uh, lost friend or family member, whoever it might be. Say, everyone, you know, everyone puts hope in something, right? What about you? What do you hope for? You know, what, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What keeps you going in hard times? What do you hope for? What do you long to be true? What is it that motivates your life and keeps you going? Use that very easy way to pivot the conversation again toward Christ. They may, in turn, ask you the same question. Well, what, what, what do you hope for? What gets you out, out of bed in the morning, Joe? Well, Christ gets me out of the bed in the morning. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, I, just, I, I know that my greatest problem in the world is sin and that Christ has paid for it. I've, I've trusted in him to forgive me of my sins, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best with God's help to, to live every day in, in, in following Christ and living my life not, not just like him but with him. That gives me hope because I know that God promises to raise me from the dead. He's promised me eternal life as I've trusted in Jesus. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. I don't just long for it to be true. I know that it's true. I've experienced it. Question number three. And this is where we're really cutting to the heart of the matter with those that you know who may not know Jesus yet. You may need to ask them at some point. You will need to ask them at some point in your conversations with them. Friend, have you ever given thought to the hope that, Je- to the hope that Jesus offers to us in the Bible? Have you ever given thought to the, to the hope, to the truth that the Bible uh, uh, offers to us of salvation in Jesus' name? Have you ever thought about it? You might be interested to find what their answers may be. Perhaps they've never thought about it before until the moment that you ask. Perhaps they've thought about it several times. Perhaps their answer to that question would be, you know, I have thought about it a lot, but nobody's ever really explained to me what all that means. What a wonderful opportunity that would be to share the gospel. Or I thought about it a little bit, but I'm not sure if I agree with it. What do you think? In just asking honest questions and listening to honest answers in our conversations with those who don't yet know Christ, you may be astounded at the kinds of opportunities that God will provide to you as you in faithfulness just engage in loving conversation with those who don't know Jesus. And then fourth and finally, and this is the hardest one, I think, for most of us to actually ask in these conversations. Like, we can talk with friends and family members about the gospel and just, like, put it all out there. And there's just kind of just, like, leave it on the table. Like, the ball's in your court. You know, I'm just going to set this here, and you do what you want, and we walk away. But I think Scripture actually calls us to go a step further and to actually ask this question. Dear friend, mom, grandma, nephew, whoever it might be, what would it take for you to put your trust in Jesus? What's holding you back? Why haven't you trusted Christ yet? 
And you don't ask that in a condescending way. You don't ask it in a way that, that makes somebody feel like you're judging them or anything. It's just an honest question. You, you, know, you knowing that I have, have trusted Christ for my salvation this way, to be right with God, well, what's keeping you from doing the same? Maybe it's a lack of belief. Maybe it's a lack of, of, of information. But you won't ever know until you ask the question. And so you can't just put the gift of salvation or, you know, in a box on the table in front of somebody and say, here's this thing, and then just walk away. You've got to also ask, do you want to receive this, right? How, how, how else will our lost friends and family members know to, to trust Jesus if we've not asked them, would you like to trust him? It's amazing how many people have not yet trusted Christ because they didn't even know that they could. Like the gospel is this thing that's out there that's just for like Jesus-y people, but not for people like me who are really far from God. But friends, the gospel is for everyone. Man, woman, short, tall, fat, bald, ugly, pretty. I fit half of those categories. Okay? The gospel is for all of us. It's for everyone. Of every, every background, every ethnicity, every, every, every uh, level of our social strata in, in this country and in the world, it's for everyone. But we've got to invite people to receive it. So what I would ask of you is just to be bold, Christian. Be bold in asking that question. Dear friend, what, what's holding you back from trusting Jesus? You've heard the gospel I've shared with you. What, what's stopping you from trusting him today? And friends, those of you who are here and worshiping us with us this morning, you who, who are not yet, you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You wouldn't say that you necessarily ha- have yet come to a place where you've trusted Jesus for your salvation. But you've heard the gospel here this morning, that Christ, that God wants to save you from your sin by uniting you to himself through your faith in Jesus Christ. You've heard the good news of the gospel this morning. I extend to you the same question. What's holding you back? What's holding you back from trusting Jesus today? I pray the answer is nothing. Because in a moment, we're going to sing a song of response. We're going to have opportunity for you to step out of your seat, to come and, and, and to grab me and speak with me here at the, at the front of the worship center and say, nothing is holding me back today. I want to trust Jesus today. I don't know everything yet. I don't know the whole Bible yet. You know, I don't understand what all this faith stuff is really about, but I know that what you've said is true, and I want this for my life. I want to know Jesus. I want to walk with him. I want to grow in my knowledge of him and my closeness with God. I've been running for far too long. Today's the day where, where I don't run anymore, where I turn from the direction I've been going, and now I, I walk in obedience to God through faith in Jesus. May today be the day of salvation for you, friend, who does not yet know Christ. I pray that there would be nothing keeping you from responding to Jesus this morning. Let us pray.